Hi, it's Elise Lunen, host of Pulling the Thread. Today's guest is Thomas Hubel, an incredible spiritual teacher and the author of the just-released Attuned, Practicing Interdependence to Heal Our Trauma and Our World, as well as the book Healing Collective Trauma. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Hi, it's Elise Lunen, host of Pulling the Thread. On this show, we pull apart the web in which we all live to understand who we are and why we're here. Pulling the Thread is about big questions, why we do what we do, how we can understand our own experiences within a larger spiritual and historical context, the ways in which we might begin to understand ourselves and each other better, and what's required to heal ourselves and our world. I'll be joined in conversation by luminaries and wise elders, those who have laid tracks in their work and lives to help us bring meaning and understanding to a world that often feels chaotic and overwhelming. My hope is that these conversations spark moments of resonance and plant tiny seeds of awareness so that we might all collectively learn and grow. Everything we heal, we mature, we develop in ourselves is never just for ourselves only. It's always also ecosystemically relevant. So if somebody becomes more open, it will affect all the relationships that person has in life. So all the relationships will begin to enjoy or benefit from the fact that I grow. Everybody that knows me benefits from my growth because it will nourish all those relationships. So we are always ecosystemic and individual at the same time. So says Thomas Hubel, who I'm thrilled to welcome back to Pulling the Thread. Our first conversation, entitled Processing Our Collective Past, I'll link it in the show notes, is one of my favorites to date, although today's conversation doesn't disappoint either. In Thomas's new book, Attuned, Practicing Interdependence to Heal Our Trauma and Our World, he explores the idea of being present or creating the internal capacity to host the experiences of others. He mentions this line from Ferris Bustanji, which sums it up. To get in contact with the other, you have to be in contact with yourself. Thomas Hubel is a spiritual teacher, yes, but his particular genius point is holding space for large groups, groups that can then begin to process and transmute dark, dense, collective energy, energy that's often held by traumatized culture and places. He has worked all over the world because this stuck energy is everywhere. And when we fail to acknowledge and move it, we're stuck, repeating karmic cycles. In Attuned, Hubel explains what we can all gain from getting in touch with our ability to host the experiences of others. As he writes, When I speak to groups or before an audience at an event, it is not enough that I show up knowing what I wish to say. To be effective, I must be in dialogue with the whole. 
and therefore aware of the group or the audience as a dynamic system. Only noticing what is happening for me is not enough. I must be able to accurately feel with and adapt to the needs of my listeners. I need to clearly sense my participants' degree of availability and curiosity. I also need to perceive whether and when I am being heard and received, or what else might be needed or present. The clarifying of the relational matrix comes with expanded awareness and offers an acceleration of our coming into relation. This is the leading edge of communication and leadership, and it requires deeper awareness of the intersubjective space from all. Now this sounds like something we all need. Let's get to our conversation on how it can happen. Great to see you again, Elise. Hello. Uh, Hi. <laughs> Great to see you too. I was just talking to a friend of mine who's a trauma therapist who had originally sent me your first book. And I was like, I'm seeing Thomas again, and you need to get attuned in two weeks or whenever it comes next week, in any day, right? Soon. It's coming soon. out soon. <laughs> it's coming out tomorrow. The book's coming out tomorrow. Oh my God. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so let's dive into it because we could go for a couple hours and I know we only have one. So first of all, congrats again. I know your primary medium is working in groups of people live and being present with them, but the book does an excellent job of translating a lot of these headier concepts about the way that energy moves in our world and gets stuck and shows up in quote unquote karmic patterns and I felt, despite not being a therapist, but obviously sitting in conversation with a lot of people, that it's an incredible invitation to understand how to be with people in a more meaningful, substantive way. Maybe we can start with that quote. I think it's Faris Bustanji, hopefully I'm saying that correctly. To get in contact with the other, you have to be in contact with yourself. So maybe let's start with that, how you open the book, which is how you do that, you, Thomas, and then how you show people how to be present. Yeah, I think for me, it it's a mix of, like I've spent 30 plus years exploring my own inner world. So that for sure has a big effect. So as you said, we need to be first attuned or in touch with ourselves, connected to ourselves, which is already in itself like a very interesting process because where trauma resides in me, I cannot fully feel myself and I cannot fully feel you. I cannot feel society. I cannot feel nature. I, it's like I some information is missing. So having an introspective practice meditation contemplation yoga like whatever some contemplative practice we call our practice three sync practice so that i regularly go inside i get to know my body that i see wow actually my body is so rich so much information i can get to know more and more of my body and that helps me also to consciously experience my body as an instrument that's resonating all the time 
everything I feel about my body is data flow. You know, there's a constant data flow that I feel my hands, there's data flowing to my brain, back to my hands. And so we are actually all the time in a flow. And then also my emotions, my mind, my capacity to relate to you and feel you right now is also data that my senses transmit to me and then to you. And so like this, we are establishing between us a, a field of data flow. We call this nervous system synchronization. And I think at, attunement makes life simply so much richer and so much more, I don't know, deep, full, colorful, also nuanced. And also, like we are also feeling the, the aspects of life that are painful, we are also feeling those more. And I think also that part of life, or especially that part of life needs us, but maybe that's something we can talk about later. So yeah, attunement to myself means tuning the instrument. Attuning to you is that between our instruments, music's playing. And I think attunement mm -hmm. has a lot to do with my data flow beginning to resonate with your data flow. It's like when you have two cars driving on a highway and they're driving at the same speed, I say sometimes. So then you can actually open the windows and talk because you're matching your speed. I think attunement is a little, not a little bit, it's like that. And so when we feel each other, we actually create a data connection that allows us to communicate whatever needs to be communicated. Things that are easy where we resonate easily and the things that are also conflicted, contradicting, different, and learn to, to that the relationship becomes stronger than the difference or the conflict. So yeah, it's yeah. maybe a beginning. You mentioned your three-sync process, and you write about this in the book, and there are exercises, very short exercises that people can do. And so much of it feels like a type of body intelligence or somatic sensing, right? Which I think we're not taught this, that if you slow down even for 20 seconds, 30 seconds, and you just start scanning your body, you can sense where you're tight, where you're excited, where you're clenched. The body is full of information. And as you were just saying, that can be a block or a black hole, or you can be running energy well, right, where you're releasing it into the ground. Or can you talk just briefly about that three-sync process? Because so often it's hard to be present with anyone else when you're so internally diverted, right? Like you're internally without being conscious necessarily, but you're not in your body, or at least I experience a lot of dissociation. Mm. Yeah, it's actually, as you said it, that when we see, there are two major movements. One is stress and high activation shoots energy upwards that we can fight, run away, flight, in the, when it's really escalated and we freeze or we mm -hmm. faint. And so there are different built-in mechanisms in our autonomous nervous system that we experience. Sometimes when somebody says something, it triggers us, we feel a, a rush of energy. And it's literally stress and emotional content coming up. And then it feels much harder to be grounded, connected, to have space. But the other 
way is also true that when I become more aware, oh, actually, I feel a bit tight in the solar plexus, I feel a bit stressed, and I pay attention, I embrace my stress, I slow down my exhalation a bit. So then I can learn, and it's a training, it's not maybe happening right away, but it's a training that I can more and more regulate my nervous system. Then I feel the opposite movement, I feel a movement downwards, it opens the lower part of my body. I feel again the ground. I can feel even into the ground. Then I feel my body sensations more and a wider range of body sensations. My focus gets wider. I am more able to reflect. We all know, you know, let's say you have a lovely cup of tea or coffee. You're sitting somewhere. It's kind of late afternoon or early evening. You see the, the lovely light of the sun. And you can reflect on your life. Why? Because the nervous system is in the zone where the nervous system creates the best environment for reflection. And I can digest my experiences. I can feel into the things that still linger around in me or circling in me still. Oh, what was in that conversation? Or why did this go that way? And what should I do? And so I can digest my experience. And when I digest it's like with physical food. What happens to the food? It gets integrated into the body. So we integrate those experiences and we call that learning. When we do the same thing with trauma, we call that post-traumatic learning because the organism learns something through integrating trauma. But also regular experiences that I cannot complete. I had a difficult conversation in a team meeting I walk away, it's still working in me for some time. But if I take a moment, I ground myself, I feel, oh, I've got maybe a bit ashamed, something has been said and I felt exposed, or I felt scared, or I got a bit angry. And then I stay with the emotion, I can digest it, can see if there's anything, any action or anything that needs to be done, or it simply integrates itself and I learn something. And so three things in our practice means I learn to get to know my body and the stress state in my body. I get to know my emotional experience more or also when I'm emotionally overwhelmed that I cannot say what emotion I feel. That numbness or overwhelm is equally important and often gets overridden. So that's worth talking a bit more about. I can notice when I'm stressed, my mind is much more active and tight, like I'm thinking more in loops. When I'm relaxed and open, my mind is spacious, creative, more reflective, is not so busy. It's very important for people that want to meditate that we cannot quieten the mind in the mind because the reason why we overthink is because we carry stress in the body. So yeah. being able to regulate the stress will also make my meditations much more quiet and i think so that's amazing for basically everybody because learning to regulate consciously our nervous system grounding ourselves is so helpful in so many moments in our life i know everyone says that your 20s are supposed to be the best years of your life but that wasn't the case for me i kind of hated my 20s or found that decade really hard Sensing that I was in the dumps and needed a timeout, my late brother-in-law and best friend Peter took me to France one year. Officially, we were going to see and stay with his aunt, but really I think he wanted to cheer me up. 
We went to the flea markets in the countryside on the weekends where I found a set of very old religious medals. I decided to invest these medals with the belief that everything in my life could shift, and over the following months, things started to move. I kept these medals close and then figured out how to frame them myself. I did this badly, but well enough that they could stay with me ever since. When Peter passed away in 2017, these medals became even more precious to me, earning pride of place next to my desk. They're a talisman of luck, yes, and also of Peter. But my poor framing job from 2002 started to fail recently, and so I decided to entrust my medals to Framebridge to have them framed right. I've been having Framebridge frame all my family photos for years. You can upload digital prints, and they do a beautiful and speedy job, making them the perfect place for holiday gifts, as my mother-in-law and parents treasure photos of my kids, or at least I convince myself they do, and they confirm this for me. But Framebridge also takes on objects that are typically expensive and difficult to frame, whether it's menus, tickets, original artwork, personal milestones, hotel keys, keys to your first home, or in my case, medals. You can easily order online at framebridge.com or visit one of their 20-plus Framebridge retail stores. They provide free, secure, prepaid packaging for physical items. They will then frame your piece and ship it to you in days. It's easy, it's affordable, you know exactly what it will cost up front, and they offer every conceivable framing option. Everything I've framed has always looked even better than I expected. Plus, if you're not 100% happy with your piece, they'll make it right. See why Framebridge has been trusted to frame over 2 million pieces. Visit framebridge.com or a local Framebridge store to get started and custom frame just about anything. That's framebridge.com. And so many of those stress responses, you know, we learn them, fight, flight, freeze, faint, but they're micro, right? They don't show up in the same way that I think we've been conditioned to believe. Like the fight urge doesn't mean that you're actually fighting. It means you're having this like surge of anger, rage, impatience, frustration, whatever it is. So I think we miss a lot. They're so much more subtle than I think that we think. So I want to talk, there were so many roads that we're going to go down from that. I want to talk about empathic overwhelm and groundedness, because I think, as you say in the book, that's the biggest question. People saying, I'm so sensitive, I can't handle everyone else's emotions. Then I want to talk about how energy is contagious and travels and gets stuck and create your collective traumatic ancestral trauma work. Um, And then I do want to talk about, you mentioned the numbing or the people who say, I don't feel anything. And the way that we are like, oh, then there's nothing to see there. But that I think many people listening will say, oh, that's me. Like, my memory is a black box, or I don't know what I feel. So those are three roads. Do you want to pick the order? Do you want to do (laughs) which order? Let's stay with numbness for a moment, because I brought it before already, and it seems like an important piece where lots of misunderstandings happen. Because naturally, when I ask myself, what's in my body? How do I feel my body? Sometimes I feel tight. Sometimes I feel open. I feel inner sensations of aliveness in certain parts, maybe not in other parts. So I, I begin with whatever I find, and then by attuning, 
listening, I will see that the more I practice, it becomes richer, more refined. I get more excess. I can even start to feel my inner organs, how my body is either in a good communication inside. There are certain parts that are more marginalized in my own body. So I can get pretty refined access to my inner experience, which I think is also good for my overall well-being and health, that I'm kind of more in tune with myself and I can feel imbalances in my body earlier. And then emotionally, it's the same. It's like either when I ask myself, what's the current emotion? Then I can say, oh, I'm... I feel a bit of love, I feel a bit of excitement and uh, curiosity, I feel a bit of fear or a bit of anger, a bit of so I will be able to name it. If there is not immediately or pretty fast a feeling of an emotion that I can name, then many people try to find something and I would say no, why? Let's just be with the fact that not feeling for many of us as children, was such an important mechanism to deal with the overwhelm that we experienced, a bit the overload, we simply needed to shut it down. Because let's face it, children, I often say to parents, be aware that your children are also your prisoners. Up to a certain age, children cannot walk away if there are overwhelming situations, very hard for a child to leave the context. So when things are great, then it's anyway great because then my parents, my teachers, my environment gets me and fills me and I can regulate myself and I say, oh, this is too much or I want this or I don't want this. People hear it and respect it. But mm -hmm. for many of us as kids, that didn't happen all the time or it's for some of us, it didn't happen very often. And so if I cannot regulate myself in relating and sharing what I need and what is painful and what is beautiful and what I like and what troubles me, then I need to deal with those inner states more and more on my own. And then shutting some of it down actually is better than keeping the disturbance going. And so numbing and absencing, like leaving a bit my body, leaving a bit my emotions and in traumatic situations, leaving even more and shutting down a part of myself was super intelligent. So when we cannot say what we feel, many people think it's a dysfunction. I can't do it. And in our work, we always reframe it and we say, you were able to pull out, you were able to shut down, you were able to not feel. It's actually an intelligence that's working here, not something that's not functioning. And mm -hmm. so if we depathologize not feeling, when people say, oh, I can't feel my body, I say, okay, great. Let's not try harder. Let's first together notice and respect that maybe in what you're touching right now, not feeling was better than feeling. So that there is like a positive attention to the inner state we find and not immediately a pathologizing of that inner state that something must be wrong with me because it seems like everybody else can feel and I can't, which anyway is not true, but that we see, oh, a positive relationship to the process that is happening 
also allows us to be more curious and get to know the state that I don't feel my body. And I have seen thousands of people, once we come to that moment of accepting and being curious, change starts to happen by itself. And that process of numbing or in a strong way dissociating in traumatic moments is very intelligent at that moment if it doesn't get reintegrated. So it has side effects in our life, obviously. And so when I ask myself, what do I feel? And I can't feel, then I can say, yes, I feel that I can feel, which means I respect my inner overwhelm. And I see if as compassionate or loving as I can, I relate to that part and say, I feel consciously that I don't feel. So it's not an unconscious numbness, it becomes a conscious numbness. And that opens up maybe what's underneath. And I can learn to resource myself and that's very strong. Then I need to maybe train this with a skilled therapist or set it, put it in relation to good friends and bring it into relationships so that I have co-regulation, that the relational network is very important, that I don't stay too mm. much alone with that process. But I just want to point out that we change a bit the notion or the relationship towards certain parts of ourselves. And when we touch overwhelmed parts, of course, I'm not overwhelmed often right now in that moment, but I'm touching a part of myself that got overwhelmed somewhere, most probably in my developmental time, and I'm revisiting this. And then sometimes if people, I don't know, if somebody raises their voice, I don't know anymore what I feel. So yeah. because that triggers a part of me that was shuts down in a millisecond because that part is shut down all the time. And when the, the right trigger comes, I, I experienced it. Yeah. I mean, I feel like sometimes you'll hear people say, essentially, oh, I'm just not that sensitive. And then other people who say, like, I'm a highly sensitive person, and I'm an empath, <sighs> and I'm continually overwhelmed, right? But it feels like people sometimes are desensitized, not not sensitive. Do you feel like there's sort of a, a factory setting for all humans in some way in terms of like the baseline and then some of sometimes it gets dialed up and sometimes it gets dialed down. I mean, I'm sure there's differences, but you also get the other, you get the people who are completely dislocated from their sensing organ or their feeling organ. And then mm -hmm. you get people who are living in a state of perpetual emotional overwhelm. Right. Can you talk a little bit about that and that lack of maybe groundedness? Yeah. Yeah, I would say that both is true. I think we are not all born with the same level of sensitivity. And we don't need to. Some people need for their purpose and their life like a more highly attuned nervous system. Other people need different qualities. So they are born with a different intelligence. It doesn't mean that the one is better than the other. They fit to whatever, whoever we are and whatever we want to express in this life. So I think there are differences. And at the same time, what you also said is, I think we are all sensitive beings to start with. Mm -hmm. And some of us learned to shut down 
parts of ourselves because that was the best thing to do in the given ecosystem that we call core family, that we call education system, that we call you know society where we grow up. When we when we simply constantly threatened or when we live in a constant fear that relationships will break apart, families will break apart, there's alcoholism, there's racism. Like, of course, we cannot stay in that sensitivity. It's, it's mm -hmm. too overwhelming. So we actually stay true to our future development by shutting down certain parts in order not to be constantly triggered. So I think that both is true. And then I think recognizing high sensitivity is important and sometimes because we also experienced it that way by if somebody with a very high sensitivity grows up in a family system that notices and is attuned to the high sensitivity that person can regulate and ground their experience again and again until the nervous system has that wired so strongly that it becomes the way we live. But mm -hmm. if somebody with a highly sensitive nervous system and the people around don't get it, it's like when somebody is very sensitive to music, not everybody hears music in the same way. But for some people, even small disturbances in the music they are very obvious. And for other people, it's, yeah, it's okay. It's like, it's, it doesn't matter to me. And when there is a dysfunctional attunement or constant overwhelm or like a constant danger or a constant disruption in the relational trust, then that's be, being experienced very strongly. So we actually learn to pull out of our body through the stress or to shut down and go inwards or to create a wall. There are different defense mechanisms, but so we isolate in order not to be so overwhelmed. And that's why I'm often saying, yes, let's honor that there was a lot of overwhelm, but let's also honor that it's like a tree with a big crown needs big roots, mm -hmm. broad roots. And then the tree becomes more stable. We call that grounding. And our body is actually, I believe, soil. Our body is the earth, the planet, its substance. And substance mm. helps us to ground sensitivity. So it feels like we are more held in, in our body and we, we can resonate through our body more. And some people feel like everything just goes indirectly without having some kind of filtering mechanism. And so I have also seen people that came and were very disturbed at the beginning and slowly the grounding and the digestion of some of the overwhelm brought more strength. And then more and more we experience our sensitivity again as a blessing. Because, mm. you know, just for any therapist or any, anybody that works with clients or patients or children or teachers, but also everyone as a parent, like we need our sensitivity to be able to attune. So when it's in a good balance between grounding, like exhaling, and inhaling, taking data in, when that's in a good balance, our sensitivity is not an overwhelm, it's 
the blessing we bring to the world to express our gifts. And mm -hmm. it's also, we learn how to regulate ourselves and live a lifestyle that fits to that sensitivity without mm -hmm. constantly needing to protect ourselves. Want to have conversations with incredible thinkers and leaders? Host a podcast. No, seriously, it is such a privilege to be able to sit down with people who stretch my mind every week and share their wisdom and insights with all of you. It's like going back to school and getting my own version of a PhD. So what's another place to learn from some of the most remarkable experts alive today? Masterclass. There are more than 180 masterclass instructors, including experts in leadership, negotiation, writing, and cooking. You can learn from actor Amy Poehler, who teaches improv and performance, Carla Welch, who teaches personal style, Bobby Brown, he teaches how to put on makeup, or Esther Perel, who teaches relational intelligence. Don't miss Esther's recent episode on Pulling the Thread. These instructors become your own personal mentors, helping you gain real-life skills. I use Masterclass, and you should too. There are more than 200 classes to pick from, with new ones added every month. For example, my good friend and former Pulling the Thread guest, Emily Morse, teaches about sex and communication. And if there's anyone you want to invite into the bedroom with you and your partner, it's her. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. And right now, our listeners will get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com thread. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com thread. Masterclass dot com slash thread. I often think that we're a bit like, there's certainly a better metaphor, but you know, washing machines, where we are processing, moving what's in us to create an ability to help process or move energy that's also present in the room. And we, we all know people who are exceptional at this, right? Like both in the positive and the negative, people mm -hmm. who can really bring that vibe down quite quickly, who are really heavy and dense, and then others who sort of enervate a room or just lift it through their presence and or the people that the friends that we all have where you can go for a walk and both of you are processing or co-processing and you just leave feeling so relieved so light so cleanse is maybe not the right word but can you talk a little bit about how energy and I thought you did an exceptional job throughout the book, both in talking about sort of explaining morphic resonance, Rupert Sheldrake's idea, talking about string theory, some of these concepts that can break our brains, all of these theories about how energy moves in a way that makes it very real, that not only are we imprinting on each other and projecting and receiving but that it sticks around in our environment, right? This stuff is ancestral, cultural, and familial, old. And sometimes we don't always know what it is. It's not mm -hmm. attached to any story. So you, can you talk a bit about this emotional, energetic field that we live in? Yeah, yeah, beautiful. Yeah, it's very complex. There's lots to say. Let's see if we can keep it brief enough. <laughs> Do you like it when I ask you three questions? Nested <laughs> in another one? <laughs> right. So let's start with 
what you said, Steve Porges, I think, beautifully described in the polyvagal theory that basically our autonomous nervous system, the vagal nerve, is deeply relational. We see this as mammals. We see that nourishing our children needs lots of connection, and we call this co-regulation. So the stress of a child can land in the mother or the father in the good sense. We can land in relationship. We feel the stress together. The child can ground itself. So... What that wires, if that works well, is when I feel agitated, afraid, stressed, I can go back to a safe space. It helps me to ground. I internalize a bit of the grounding and develop my own regulation. If this works well over a period of time, the child's nervous system internalizes regulation by itself. So when the child mm -hmm. grows up, I know when I'm agitated, I will always find people to co-regulate with. I can also regulate myself well, but I will find support. Support will help me to ground. I will develop a relational network that will reflect that. For other people that were more alone and they couldn't co-regulate with their, with their parents, they often learn to do it alone. And then in life later, we also try very hard alone because we didn't learn really that reaching out is safe. Often it was not safe or it was not helpful. And that also has a design effect on how we design our social life later and how much we trust people, how much we see people as resources when we don't feel good to really that it's actually a win-win to co-regulate with each other. And we also learn to provide that function. So when our mm -hmm. friends feel distressed, and we listen to them and we feel their stress with them. And we are really there, we are present, we are attuned. Within one, two, three minutes, we can see how the stress in the nervous system relaxes. And then we can literally look much better at the facts of what's actually happening in life or what's happening in my company or as a parent or whatever, as the partner in, in our intimate relationships. And so we gain perspective. And so on that level, co-regulation and that it's built into our nervous system is amazing to know. And is something, even if it has been hurt to a certain extent, we can kind of rebuild that function and it's great for us but it's also great for us to be somebody that can provide mm -hmm. it and in a way request it also from life and ask for it if we need it so i think that's an amazing function in a social ecosystem and we all build social ecosystems and that also means as exactly as you said we all imprint on each other and it means everything we heal we mature, we develop in ourselves, is never just for ourselves only. It's always also ecosystemically relevant. So if somebody becomes more open, it will affect all the relationships that person has in life. So all the relationships will begin to enjoy or benefit from the fact that I grow, everybody that knows me benefits from my growth because it will nourish all those relationships. So we are always ecosystemic and individual at the same time. Mm -hmm. Now, because you mentioned things that are lingering around in family systems, we have done a lot of work 
in our work in the last 20 years where we said, okay, what's individual trauma and development, what's ancestral trauma and development, and what's collective trauma and development. And I call this in the book, the IAC work, individual ancestral mm-hmm. collective fluidity. Why? Because that work helps us to liquefy what's a bit stuck, what's frozen, what's less moving, what's not developing. And that we see on many levels that intergenerational trauma, so trauma that grandparents passed on partly to the parents, they passed it on to us, maybe we passed it on to our children, that there is a data flow between the generations. It's like an echo. So everything that cannot be digested in one generation has an echo to the next generation. And Mm -hmm. we more and more know that there are epigenetic factors that encode for this. There are, of course, psychological factors. There are social factors. There are more factors that, like it's like different dimensions of the same thing that affect us. And so spending some time... And I love this because I've seen so much change happening. Like I've seen family systems where people literally didn't talk to each other for three decades. Then Mm. somebody works on that like family intergenerational trauma system. And the same day, a person that they did that had no contact for three decades calls the same night or writes an email the same night or estranged parts of family systems suddenly begin to move and you feel like a healing process is being set in motion that is not just affecting the person that's doing the work, but it begins to affect fragmented family systems. And I have seen this over and over again, and I think that we see our inner work not just as personal and of course attachment work is very important and we need to do it and there is intergenerational work that affects our attachment work and there's collective work so they're all kind of a system more than separate islands that we need to work on and you said it because whatever is integrated is not lingering around, but becomes our perspective. Whatever Mm -hmm. is not integrated, as Sigmund Freud already said, is part of the repetition compulsion. So we'll create patterns, cyclic movements, to try to resurface again and again, similar intimate relationship dynamics, similar work dynamics, similar dynamics in certain parts of our lives that we call patterns, but the root of the pattern is not the behavior, it's energy that's circling somewhere in the depth of our unconsciousness. Once it's being harvested, the pattern stops because the pattern Mm -hmm. is just an effect in life of circular energy flows that cannot release themselves, that are stuck. And That's why I think exactly as you said, understanding those energy flows more intellectually, emotionally, physically, relationally, ancestrally, spiritually is amazing. And we can't approach it just intellectually. Mm -mm. One can write a PhD on attachment trauma, but still suffer from the attachment wounds that the person carries because it needs a much deeper sensing. So, just knowing who my ancestors are or were 
is not enough. I need to learn to tune in, to feel, to open my inner world to the data that lives in me today. But there I have seen very powerful transformations in people's lives. That's very yeah. promising. No, it is. And it's very confronting. I mean, there's this other part, this is near the back of the book, and this feels relevant, I'm sure, to family systems and individuals, but also to our culture, right? And throughout the world, we see, as you were talking about, these repetitive patterns. When you were talking about Ukraine, for example, I didn't know that about what had happened up until 1900, sort of the famine and genocide that occurred in that same part of the world. And here, you know, in America, I was just in Australia, they're going through many of the same things, not attending to a history of slavery, but certainly attending to a history of genocide and colonialism and murdering first peoples and displacing them. And everyone, we all get so calcified, right? So stuck. It's so hard to know, because I think it becomes an intellectual process for people of like, well, am I responsible for this? How am I responsible for this? Even though I've certainly benefited from it. And you write really beautifully about this. You write, importantly, we need not agree with or condone the harmful beliefs or behaviors of our ancestors to acknowledge their contributions to our lives. This is a point of considerable conflict for many. Yet deep down, we know the paradoxical truth. Our ancestors gave us life, and that is sacred. As long as we refuse to acknowledge their past moral failures, those past moral failures repeat in the form of our own living struggles and social crises. It is only by choosing to witness and digest our ancestors' crimes that we have power to stop them from being repeated. And you talk about how, you know, this indigenous 14-generational belief system, how we can, in this moment, heal seven previous generations, seven generations to come by actually attending to what's present instead of pushing it down the field. So how do you hold people in that paradox of gratitude and anger, shame. I mean, there are so many present emotions, right? But we can't escape them. We can't run as much as we would like to sort of do that. Yeah, it's beautiful. As you said it already, like we make spaces. We In our work, we create spaces where we begin to be able to hold the paradoxical nature of that and that we don't try to get to the solution. So I'm often saying trying to look at how it looks like when it's healed is another form of avoiding what's actually here. Mm. Many people say, how long do I need to do this work? Or when will I be done with this? Or when will it be done? I don't know. And it's also not important because it's a way not to relate to what's the next step. And the next step is sometimes, I don't know how to deal with that. Maybe that's the next step. So let's bring confusion, that not knowing, that overwhelm, that rage, that shame, that strong guilt, whatever it is, that fear. Let's be with this together. Create collective spaces that are relational, that have certain precepts, how we hold each other in those places. And we begin with what is actually here, 
when I think about the past of my ancestors, when I think about how colonialism hurt First Nation people, like what's happening now in Australia with the voice, there is very important moments. And we all have something come up. Even if nothing comes up, that is what comes up. Because it can't be that when such fundamental human rights questions are being asked, that nothing comes up. And if nothing comes up, then the numbness is the thing we need to see. The distance, the avoidance, that it's everything too much. Okay, let's honor that it's too much, but let's be with it. That's the entry gate to like a deeper process. And as you said, it's seven generations into the future. It's response. Ability is ability to respond. So mm-hmm. can I begin to have a connection to the next generations and the reverberation forward in time and backward in time, like how the next generations affect us and we affect them with the way we live. So that for some people is already a big stretch because it looks like time only flows in one direction. And I wrote a bit about this in the book, like the retro causality and how time moves not just into one direction, but actually the next generation is already affecting us. The future is affecting us here already. And the same is responsibility, responding to our ancestors' lives. I have held many workshops where, especially in in Germany or between Germany and Jewish people, where Nazi descendants were sitting with Holocaust survivors or their descendants in the same room. And the tremendous amount of guilt, the tremendous amount of pain and fear, it's very strong. But if we have holding spaces, amazing things can happen. Amazing restorative processes can happen that restore life. And restore is not that we go back to something we know. It's that we become something together. We don't know what that is. We cannot Mm -hmm. predict who we're going to become. And I think that's why it's risky because engaging in the after effect of colonialism, we don't know how our society is going to change. When we want more equality, our lives cannot continue the way they are now. But because often there is a lot of fear and guilt and because we cannot predict that, so the process gets shut down, but we cannot continue like that. And that's why I think this collective work that we need spaces, we cannot just try to intellectualize that. Mm -hmm. That doesn't work. We need deeper spaces. We need, I believe, and that's why I'm often saying also in my talks, we need to speak to governments. We need an architecture in our society that helps us to integrate the legacy. The US needs an architecture to integrate the legacy. Australia needs that. Europe needs that. The Middle East needs that. Everywhere we need that. Asia, Latin America, you know, everywhere you look, you have massive trauma. And I think We noticed at a certain time that hospitals are good for people that urgently need care. So we implemented that. And I think now something new is needed. We need collective healing spaces because that's a tremendous impact on healthcare costs. That's a tremendous impact on criminal rates. That's a tremendous impact on reducing racism. It's a, a tremendous impact on education, on the way political polarization works. We have to create 
the architecture that doesn't exist yet in a functional form, like mainstream form, that helps us to ground those legacies skillfully, like mm -hmm. facilitated spaces that where we can literally look at this together and integrate the legacy because we understand how important it is not to repeat it. We are bound to repeat the unconscious patterns. And I think, and then uh, one part of our intellect says, no, but it's not true. But if most of us look at our lives, we will find some repetitive patterns that are persistent, that are still there, that are still working. And many of us did already 20 years of therapy and people say still, I still have that pattern. So yeah. it's not that they just disappear magically, they need attention. And yeah. I think, as you said, the war in Ukraine is a sign that we didn't do the work in the last four decades or five decades in Europe that needed to be done in order to prevent this war. I believe it's possible to prevent that, but for that we need to open up the legacies of the famine that was there, of the Second World War, the First World War, big scars that are residing in our unconscious. High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next Student Visionaries of the Year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in the seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org slash students. That's lls.org slash students. You know, as you said, I think so many of us see this as an intellectual need or a policy need, et cetera, something that we can solve on the mental. And so, of course, all of this is true to some extent. We need equity in our systems and to attend to all of that. But it's really limited, I think. What I see happening, too, is that and I have this tendency as well. I mean, I write, wrote a whole book about the cultural conditioning of goodness and how it lands in the bodies of women, causing us to repress and suppress and project everything that we perceive or has been told is bad. And so we end up sort of clinging to this raft of goodness, which we then try to use as a shield against all of this bad feeling, right? And mm -hmm. I see this showing up in circular firing squads particularly in more liberal environments and this sort of like, are you perfect in your allyship? And then the way that we tear each other down when we're not, but we sort of are using it as a, as a protection, a ballast against attending to what's really present. Men, in my experience, are just like, I'm out. Like there's no one's really holding anyone accountable. So like, Later, we'll let you guys fight about this. You can be the punching bags for these conversations. Not all men. But that what we need is like a 360 
reckoning because the way too that our patriarchal culture is set up where power and money and whatever it is that's at the top of this pyramid scheme, whiteness, the things that we adulate culturally that I think many of us can recognize and say like, well, that's a fallacy. You might get that. It doesn't deliver you much or anything or it doesn't save you from all this feeling. And you look at the cultural chaos that's created typically, often, uh, the really destructive is happening in the hands of a lot of white men, right? Deaths of despair, school shootings, suicidality, loneliness. Like nobody gets out alive and nobody is emotionally salvaged from this work. If anything, I don't know if I'm doing a job of explaining this, but this is like a 360 healing. This isn't just about holding people accountable who have been perpetrating more harm. It's about also understanding that there is a lot of harm in being the person who's harming. Does that make sense to you? That there's like intense healing needed. It is not the the people who are sort of been the oppressive forces in our culture traditionally in some ways need the most healing. Maybe that's backwards, but it seems like that's also what's playing out. Also because they have the most power to perpetrate or keep these cycles going. Mm-hmm. Can you help me explain what mm-hmm. I'm trying to say? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. First of all, I, I, I love that you go into these deep topics and also so eloquently, and that you, I, I feel when you speak that you really deeply work this in yourself also and in your work. So that's really beautiful. And I agree also with many things that it's not an either or holding one as mm-hmm. uh, holding somebody accountable or healing. It's both. But sometimes because it's so hard to go a bit deeper, to really feel in our bodies and emotions, like what these kind of things mean and which layers it has in us, it's much easier to bail out somehow and try to get out of it through some kind of mechanism. Also the goodness in some, like there is a projected goodness that creates and behind that there is a kind of a vacuum because we don't actually want to go deep. And we can see that, that when integrated presence is vulnerable, is willing to learn, is willing to receive, is willing to bow, is willing to stay connected when it's difficult. No, uh, understood that privilege means I can turn away. And that knowing mm-hmm. that I learn to use my privilege to turn towards and to be willing to stay in the fire of learning together, especially when it's about cultural wounds, but also when it's about individual trauma work, that all those qualities, I think we feel the integratedness or the willingness to hold the unintegratedness of our physical, emotional, mental, relational, spiritual, ancestral roots, that all those layers are important. And it's not the the one or the other, because they're all one. So if Mm -hmm. I exclude some of it, it, their solutions uh, where we are going together will also be only partial and those fragmentations will surface anyway again. We, we can't get out of it. So that's, and you said that beautifully. So we, the only way is skillfully in. 
their ways skillfully in. And, and that's a process that we cannot predict because whenever we go deeper, the one who goes deeper, whoever that is, changes. We, mm -hmm. we don't stay the same person. When we heal, we open up, we integrate something fundamentally. We don't stay the same culture. So we're going to change in ways that are unpredictable. And that's often scary. And that risk, I think if we use our privilege to take that risk again and again, and if we do that, as like as I often say, then we become a living prayer. Then I'm committed to life and I'm committed to being here and to work with skillfully, not just I throw myself into overwhelm and then I'm just overwhelmed. That doesn't have any... Meaning because nothing hap nothing happens, then I just feel pain and I'm stuck. But that we do it skillfully and that we create those spaces where we can do that together. And then accountability, restorative actions, so social justice, and everything that's needed to repair uh, the social fabric in action needs to be done as much as the internal fabric needs to be repaired. Relationships need to be repaired. Our ancestors need to make peace. And they cannot just make peace. We need yeah. to be the ones that own the repercussions of our ancestors' lives and invest the energy that's needed to create a form of peace that we cannot control. And I think mm -hmm. only then, when we are willing to, in a way acknowledge the history that happened so deeply that we begin to rewrite history, not because we want to change history. Is it often now that we rewrite the history books because all we don't want to have anything to do with the past. That's toxic. But when we authentically and relationally go deep and we embrace the truth of what happened and we are willing to stand in that truth, then we also become like a healing force backwards in time. So literally, mm. it, it has an effect on our ancestors' lives, I believe, that through our presence, we literally impact the living system through our own embodiment. And, and I think that changes society now. That stops mm. some of the repetitive patterns, the re-traumatizing patterns. And then it's not... Because if it's about... What do I have to do in order to repair something that happened in the past? I, I'm not there yet. I mean, maybe something needs to be done anyway, because it's vital to you know, create more equality in our society. But if I have to, when we heal, I often say in the collective trauma work, we often say, imagine there is a book and the book is partly frozen like it's in the ice you see a part of the book but the part of the book is in in ice and the book contains the remedy that we need but we can't read the book because it's frozen in the ice so that's why i often say trauma or collective trauma work is the prerequisite and the more the ice melts the ethical restoration is a human need I think deep inside our core, we know that we want, not we have to, but we want to restore the wounds of the past because we see how ecosystemic health cannot happen 
And I think there is a fundamental impact on of what I'm saying on our healthcare understanding. The public health and individual health cannot happen in an ecosystem that is not healthy. Yeah. So it affects us literally in our like health-wise, the the unrestored collective wounds affect individuals of that ecosystem health-wise. And and it, the reverse is also true. I think coming to a place where I want that reparation, I want the repair to happen, I want the restoration to happen, I want that collective growth, then also something happened because then it touches the place in me that knows how to respect human rights in each other and how to create a society that is truly respectful of the essence of who we are. That's not, oh, I have to behave in a certain way. The law, the Tao says, when we, the Tao Te Ching in Stephen Mitchell's translation says this beautiful, beautifully, it says, when humans, when we live according to the Tao, the law will be written in our hearts. Mm. It says like the, the law is inherent to the action and our life. It's not an external reminder of how I should live. Once it's externalized, it means that I'm dissociated inside. I can't feel life fully. And so that's what you said, I think is very important. How can we create the spaces that we come to a place where that need gets reawakened and then we will do anything that's needed because yeah. we see its importance. Yeah. It's so beautiful, both that this is encoded in ice and may we all stay mm. in the fire and help mm. thaw it so we can integrate it. Well, thank you. I could talk to you for many more hours and the book's amazing. Thank you. Wow, I just, I love Thomas. I think what he's doing is so important and he's such a gifted facilitator that I hope everyone comes to know him. He writes, Continuing to deny historical truths further annihilates survivor groups. It is a terrible re-traumatization. But denial is also an unconscious agreement to cease or regress one's own growth and development. By accepting responsibility, perpetrators of collective trauma on their descendants break away from the conditioned narrative and ultimately disidentify with their former group self-concept. They find a renewed sense of group esteem as they retell their communal narratives with ownership, accountability, truth, and a sense of deeper understanding and inclusion. New meaning and purpose, along with new stories, are created from a position of responsibility to the traumatized, to the culture at large, and to one's own future descendants. I love what he said about this book being frozen in ice, and then this idea of staying in the fire, which to me means recognizing that we're each containers or vessels in some way for processing all of this material in our own lives and in the collective. And that as we continue to do the work to stay in the fire, we turn ourselves into larger and larger containers able to process more. And that it's on each of us to do our part, whatever that may be. For some of us who've had a lot of personal trauma, 
That might be our work. That might be what needs to happen, and that is enough. And for others who haven't had that, who've lived life's privilege and relative ease, our work is then to attend to this larger cultural responsibility. And it is so deeply uncomfortable. It is so appealing to turn our backs and walk away and to leave it for someone else to attend to. But in Thomas's view, and my view as well, we can't do that anymore. We can't continue to kick this down the field. And so we have to stay in the fire, even when it feels like it might consume us. But we have the capacity, I know, that we do, or we have the capacity to do what we can. If you liked today's episode, please rate and review and tell a friend. You can find show notes and full transcripts of the episodes at elisalunan.com. While there, please sign up for my Substack. I send a short note every Wednesday about topics that are aligned with this show and a deeper dive most Sundays. Or follow me on Instagram at Elise Lunan. And finally, if you haven't already, please consider picking up a copy of my New York Times bestselling book, On Our Best Behavior, The Seven Deadly Sins and the Price Women Pay to Be Good, available wherever you get your books. It's an exploration of how women have been conditioned for goodness, men for power, and all the ways we've been programmed to police ourselves and each other according to these cultural ideas of what it is to be a good woman. I'd also like to give a huge thank you to my sponsors who make this show possible. Please support them the way they support this podcast. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studio. If you enjoyed this episode, please listen, rate, review, and follow Pulling the Thread. Available now for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. I want to give a shout out to Phil Svitek, Lauren LaGrasso, Mary-Kate McDonough, Allie Brockman, and the entire Cadence 13 team for producing these episodes, and to Valero Duvall for my key art. Take care of yourselves. I'll see you next week.